Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. President Xi Jinping has officially secured a third term and will lead the Communist Party of China for another five years. But just one day into President Xi's new term of leadership, Asian markets fell sharply as investors reacted to the increasing risk of consolidated power. Today, we welcome investment director Catherine Young to the show. Catherine is based out of Hong Kong and helps break down the significance of this precedent-breaking new term for Xi. She explains what we can expect under Xi's leadership and how investors should position themselves for what's to come. This podcast was recorded on October 24th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So I think I'll begin, if you don't mind, with a market reaction, because that seems like the most recent piece of what's been going on. Love to get your take. We've seen selling. Yes, um, heavy selling, in fact. So at lunchtime yesterday, 80% of the flows we were seeing when we look at the northbound stock connect trading. So that's, you know, the trading going on in mainland China. It really came primarily from European as well as US-based uh, investors. Taking a step backward, though, Pamela, even before the Congress, there was a lot of uncertainty. So treading water, investors were sort of hoping for certain things to come out of the Congress, even though expectations going into the Congress were quite low in terms of, um, you know, new policies announced to underpin economic growth. So over the weekend, when the new standing committee, so seven members still were announced, and as, as you highlighted, the perception is that the new leadership team is, is, is perceived to be less market orientated. The markets opened up yesterday and, and had some extreme movements on the downside, even though, interestingly, we had some data releases. So total social financing was on the positive side in terms of medium to longer term lending, in terms of GDP, beat expectations. Exports even were, were relatively good in terms of versus consensus and guidance. But that wasn't enough to um, really see or overcome some of the question marks still from, from the Congress itself. So you saw some heavy selling in those very well-loved names, such as Alibaba. Have you seen on, on the river, because you spoke about the northbound, so, I mean, are you seeing some some buying? There is a bit of a bid coming in from the other direction, right, from, from Chinese investors picking up certain equities. Tell us what you see there. Yeah, exactly. So as we've spoken about in the past, that sort of rise of the domestic investor base is, is you know, becoming very important. So the southbound stock connect trading, so that's local domestic Chinese investors buying stocks listed on Hong Kong, that actually at the same period lunchtime yesterday was in, in net inflows. Just to give you a sense of the dynamic between the extreme outflows from foreign investors versus the local flows coming into the market. There were a lot of expectations yesterday as well that should we see further 
um, or significant downward movements that the national team, so that's a consortium of companies in China, could step in and support the market. But they would tend to buy the HS, the mainland stocks. But there's no suggestion of that at this precise moment in time. And, and what's interesting is that throughout this past year, the national team hasn't really been present. Uh, they don't notify the market when they're buying, but you can kind of gauge in terms of the trading desks do 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 tend to see uh, certain movements when this happens. So I want to get your opinion, dig further into really the politics of of what we've seen. But there are, I think, also economic releases to come. I mean, there are going to be updates on sort of the economic story and actually areas for further stimulus, as I understand it. Is that sort of how investors should also kind of be waiting for some of those pieces to fall into place? I think people were just banking so much on this on this big Congress meeting, and it was almost like the goalposts had now shifted, and so this continuation of treading water. So the Congress itself is a political event. And then later this year, so towards December, we have the Working Committee, which is where further economic policy is going to be articulated. We also have the PLIP Bureau meeting, and then in March, around about March next year, we have the two-party meeting. So these predominantly will focus on the economic story of China. And this is why the market just feels there's a bit of this opaqueness, because there is no clear-cut economic policy. Having said that, the market's also tended to ignore, or commentators have ignored, the emphasis that Xi Jinping, from his first day speech to towards the end of the Congress, the focus on China continuing to open up, not just continuing to open up, but the areas of growth. So whether it's, again, a focus on high-end manufacturing, on areas like aerospace, on infrastructure or targeted infrastructure, on environmental, on healthcare, and not too much emphasis on property, although property still remains something we need to be cognizant of and focus on, but it, it, it's almost like the market is, has just completely ignored all that and, and capitulated. And that's why those very well-loved names or almost proxies for the China market were significantly sold off yesterday. It's fascinating. You, you brought in uh, opening up, and I, I see how you mean in, in particular sectors, but I do want to ask about the COVID zero policy. I, I think of more recent sort of updates, it did seem that, you know, COVID zero policy was not going to just go away right after the Congress, although months ago there was sort of a thought around that. What did you take from the overall discussion? And again, I think this was an area of disappointment uh, because the zero COVID policy has taken a, a toll to a well, it has taken a toll on on both economic data or an economic recovery. So the economic recovery is probably going to be a lot more gradual. So that W shape we spoke about previously, uh, but also that there was no roadmap out. Now, what's happening on the ground and in, in terms of the dynamic uh, zero COVID policy is that we're seeing the removal of city-wide lockdowns. So it's now more community-wide lockdowns. The infrastructure around PCR testing is, is quite amazing what they've done. But you still need these regular PCR tests to, to really go anywhere in the Chinese cities. So there are expectations that, you know, and some of our China PMs do think that by March next year we'll see an improvement. Uh, you could see a tweak to policy if the WHO were to change their definition or, or, or define 
the pandemic or endemic differently. But in terms of of just that that moving to 180 degrees and opening up, it's 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 quite unlikely to occur. Um, throughout the Chinese COVID zero policy. It's it's obviously an overall policy, but it's it's certainly taken a working together approach at very local levels. Were those that were when you look at sort of the who was appointed to the various positions, were those that did the COVID policy well in local situations rewarded? Was there a sense of sort of that type of discussion coming into who is now running China for Xi Jinping? Some commentators are, are saying that and, and again saying that, you know, loyalty is very, very important in this regard. You know, I, when I look at the COVID situation, though, and, and Hong Kong, I mean, versus where we were last time we chatted, it's, I flew in the other day and it was just it was almost like Hong Kong was back to total efficiency, right? I, it took me less time to get in and out of the airport or out of the airport home than, let's say, other airports around Europe and, and the UK. But that's sort of, um, so what happens now in Hong Kong is that you, you fly in, you don't have to have all those PCR tests before getting on the airplane. The airplanes aren't banned if they have more than, you know, X amount of people on the flight. You're allowed to do medical surveillance at home and you get regular PCR tests and you submit your rats every day or your, your rapid antigen tests. And, you know, for those three days medical surveillance, you're not really allowed to go to restaurants or bars or anywhere where you effectively have to take your mask off. So there are a lot of expectations that, this kind of policy could be rolled over into Guangdong or the province, and if it's successful, rolled further afield into the various provinces in China. So that's that's one area of potential, you know, quite meaningful changes to the COVID policy. You know, it's interesting. I, I was talking to one of our portfolio managers, who's also um, who covers, uh, you know, a key sector for us, which has been impacted by the zero COVID policy, and, and he said his parents are are actually quite fine with the policy because they need to see go to the local hospital on a regular basis for certain treatments. Now, if that hospital was to become overwhelmed, they couldn't get those treatments. So it is a little bit of a different mindset when you're on the ground in China in terms of whether I'm not saying that everyone thinks like that, but it's interesting hearing the viewpoints on the ground in support of, of zero, zero COVID policy. Absolutely. And, and speaking of the portfolio managers, um, the sort of the fund management team has a little bit of an update. Do you want to share with us what what has changed and actually what's the same, but what, what's going yeah. on there? Sure. So from the 1st of October, we've got a new lead portfolio manager. So Jing, who was previously manage, managing the strategy, has in fact uh, relocated to Shanghai and she's been promoted to head of equities. Uh, but because of regulation, you can't manage international assets or, or money from, from, from China. And what was really key for us was to maintain this value style bias because, quite frankly, there are hardly any, if, if any, genuine value contrarian investors when it comes to China. So we did look externally, um, but we really found that our other very value orientated portfolio manager who's great colleagues with with Jing they actually asked to to help the team or not or I should say join the team so Alice who was already part of the management team or, or portfolio management team with with Jing remains and she's a, a co-portfolio manager 
we've asked Karen to become an assistant portfolio manager and she retains her research coverage in terms of property. And then Nitin Bajaj is now the lead portfolio manager. And, and Nitin is, is um, a very established value regional portfolio manager, but he tends to focus in terms of his other strategies, which he currently still runs, on the small cap part of the market. So whilst he's been investing in China for over a decade, it's been more mid, small mid cap. So he's really ramped up since we were talking about Jing moving back to China in terms of the top names, all those names he was less familiar with. And so he's really done a deep dive into the industries. Karen and Alice obviously fully on top of China given their expertise. And so now we have this team of three. And I still speak to Jing all the time, but Jing it does not have any portfolio management responsibilities across any of the strategies. Uh, but that she's there in China to to share her insights. And, you know, as I said, she's always been so interesting in terms of those insights and different to the market. And, uh, you know, we'll be able to work closely with the team in terms of those insights. The, the discussion of a truly sort of value contrarian side of things, I think, I think is, is it fair to say that defensively positioned is is still sort of the way to go at this point? Or is there anything to add to that? Is there a, is there a new way of looking? at things at this point in terms of positioning? I, I still think that despite the valuation, or not the valuation, the dispersion between value and, and growth narrowing and not being as wide as it was, let's say, earlier this year or last year, those companies with defensive earnings, that dividend yield, which acts as a cushion, makes a lot of sense in this kind of market. And in, in terms of the portfolio itself, it's, 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 it's going to be very, very similar. Like, even if you say, well, why are you hiring or why have you hired a small mid-cap fund manager to be the lead? Um, even before, let's say if, if, if the portfolio had 10% small mid-caps, incrementally it would go up to maybe 13, 15. Nothing that would set the models off saying this is now a small cap fund. So it's going to remain a large cap value contrarian style buys portfolio. And the way the managers think is very, very similar. So value again in China isn't about just owning utilities or low beta strategies. We think that we can continue to find value opportunities across a number of industries, no matter where you are in the cycle. But at this point in the cycle, Pamela, as you highlighted, having that sort of defensiveness um, means a lot. Although yesterday, you know, companies that have got attractive free cash flows are paying an incredibly attractive dividend yield, uh, no debt. They also got caught up in the massive sell-off, even though fundamentals remained really sound. So it, it just felt like a bit of a capitulation yesterday. And, and panic selling. So it'll be interesting to see what happens this week and, and further afield. And, and ultimately, if, if certain opportunities perhaps open up um, on, on that front, is there, going back to the Congress itself, how much, I guess, was a surprise? I mean, there, there were some things that were expected, I think, probably by some of the portfolio managers that, that you're working with on the team, but um, how different is the policy outlined and therefore how close you need to stay to certain types of, of policy that are in place probably going forward. Just give us a sense of sort of how you know how to stick with the policy side of things for opportunities. I've always said that policy is important when it comes to, to China, whether it's broad overarching policy or industry policy, and that, that hasn't changed. I guess what investors are trying to grapple with is how much of potential policy could change, which then has an, a knock-on effect to the economy. 
But if you think about it, if China really wants to continue to be the, the superpower, they need to have a very, very healthy private sector. They need to see the continued development of the capital markets, especially with, for example, property no longer being a backbone of the economy. So what's going to replace that? I, I think that, you know, often when you see these extreme market movements, either on the upside or the downside, they're, they're often driven by high emotions. And so it will be interesting to see, and history has, has showed us that, it will be interesting to see what happens, you know, this week and, and subsequent weeks as, as we perhaps get further clarity on that economic policy. So it just, again, feels, I think the market was just disappointed that, oh, we're still treading water. And, you know, everything technically looks in China's favor in terms of it's still at a different stage. The most developed economies in terms of it has the ability to support the economy to loosen monetary and fiscal policy. Um, but is, is this just, a, you know, it just feels like it's another hurdle before we see that delta coming through. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting how how economies are at very different stages. Obviously, the story of central banks around the world. Um, in, in recent weeks has been extraordinary as well. There's lots of extraordinary news going on. Um, coming back to the sectors that you mentioned focusing on, I wonder, can you just give a little bit more color on sort of where aerospace is at this point, where it's going, and, and I suppose, you know, how there could be opportunities to capitalize when, when more reopening actually happens, when more flying happens? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's aerospace in terms of uh, the high end, like going into space and and those kind of areas, uh, they're in the, the, you know, the, the newer part of this, the cycle. It's just like the semi cycle. We've come from a very low base in China, but the development's been so, so quick. But versus, let's say, some of the semi, uh, conductor manufacturers in Taiwan and Korea, it, it's still quite wide in terms of the end product. So in terms of, um, the areas that the portfolio is, is, of looking at it's it's still industrials it's still you know the, the Chinese banks um, it's still some plays on recovery so for example there's an advertising company in there which is doing incredibly well even though we've had this sort of um, downturn in terms of consumer and the retail you know interesting Pamela as well when you look at the household savings rates it's it's over 30% still so it's not that Chinese households don't have the cash it's just that sentiment coming through. And in fact, when you look at household assets, it's worth something like 100 or 618% of GDP or over 100 trillion US dollars. So it's not that households have the same situation as many households globally in terms of debt. It's That's just that sentiment. Yeah. And so maybe that pent up demand. And, and again, maybe this is why the market's disappointed. There was no change in, in the COVID policy. So when is that pent up demand recovery? going to come through. But you say it like, I mean, it sounds like it will be sort of phased in or tweaks. Um, uh, I mean, all of the reopenings were that way, but is, is that sort of perhaps how investors should be thinking about this? It feels that way. And as I said, you know, it'd be interesting to see how, if, this, if the model that we're seeing in Hong Kong is rolled out into the mainland, right. Um, right. the future of that. Um, tell us, you told us about a couple of interesting consumer brands. I mean, this would be a few months ago now, but I, I know that sort of the cultural consumption, everything to do with sports. Um, also, you've mentioned healthcare, but sort of 
go into sort of the cultural consumption side of things and also the sports industry? Yeah, the sporting names are actually looking quite expensive valuation-wise. So Jing actually sold out of the main sport names or sports power names when we saw a lot of the re-ratings come through. In terms of consumer staples, though, they're likely to be somewhat of an inflationary beneficiary. Now, China's inflation is benign versus, again, let's say global economies, it's hovering around 2 2.5%. You're still going to see that knock-on global impact coming through into China. So some of the consumer staple names are in the portfolio. Um, in terms of healthcare, it's not those well-known healthcare names so that are sort of skewed towards or beneficiaries of, of biotech development and R&D. It's more sort of pharmaceutical retail names which have niche positions demographically or geographically in China. So again, it's that very contrarian approach when we look at those big overarching themes, whether it's consumption and healthcare. And obviously, we can't ignore property. It's you know it's still part of that common prosperity angle. And in terms of property, those large cap uh, state-owned enterprises such as China Overseas Land continue to be in the portfolio. And I think we've discussed in the past the consolidation, the flight to quality, and, and these guys or these companies actually benefiting. So exactly what we saw in the coal industry five years ago could play out in the property industry in terms of a more consolidated market and the kind of winner takes all. I was going to ask just for a bit more detail on the energy story. The rest of the world has, has struggled uh, for the year, most of the year, with higher energy prices. And lots of frailties have been have been shown globally uh, because of that. What is the story? You've mentioned sort of the investment side of things on perhaps green technology moving forward, but what is sort of what is the energy story? What sort of security is there for China at this point? Uh, China again is in a different situation versus parts of Europe when it comes to the energy situation and, and supply demand. Certainly, as we go into winter or power shortages, et cetera, you could see a slight increase in, in coal production. But it's been very obvious that carbon neutral aim by 2060 is in place. And many um, you know, energy-related companies are, in fact, spending their capex or doing their R&D on renewables. So it is, it is definitely a key area of opportunity. Again, though, when you look at some of these energy or, or green energy-related names, it it's, comes down to valuation again as well as, you know, the fundamentals of the company. So um, investors ultimately on, I mean, let's just go back to sort of the capital opening up and, and sides of things. People should still see that that is going to be an important part for domestic investors, capital markets. Um, there's a narrative that things are sort of maybe through the Congress come to a halt on something. Can you just sort of clarify what's changed, what hasn't changed ultimately on um, the importance of equities within the Chinese development plans? But, you know, again, I think that the, the if China is to achieve this continued growth trajectory, they need a healthy domestic um, environment or, or economy. And whether it's state-owned enterprises or indeed the private enterprises, are needed, whether it's listed companies or indeed the unlisted names, especially when you look at, for example, uh, the youth unemployment rate. It's, it's something that needs to be focused on and, you know, providing jobs for university graduates. So, you know, when you think, there's just, you can sit here and go, well, why would you try and destroy, like, these iconic Chinese brands now, right, that are, are becoming 
globally recognized or why would you halt economic growth and so I, you know, again I think that's where there, the perception has been that there's been so much emphasis on social policy at the expense of economic policy and is this now the new norm and so until we get clarity in terms of economic policy despite the you know in May the 33 uh, supportive measures and the additional 19 announced in August it just feels that it's not enough to turn this cycle and it's very interesting looking at the earnings chart so earnings expectations have historically been you know no surprise actually higher in terms versus, or I should say versus um, actual earnings but more recently earnings expectations have gone completely south and actual earnings so basically there's been an inverse relationship of the chart and it's it feels like most people have kind of just given up on China that's how it feels and um, yesterday's market movement probably further highlights that but as I said the fundamentals of the companies remain intact and that you know there has been too much of a skew to focus on the sort of perceived negatives from the Congress versus the positives that were spoken about all came out of the Congress and um, we could talk about valuations but you know valuations are still attractive or, or, or looking cheap versus global peers and versus history but you know at the end of the day I, I can also appreciate if, if people just feel that it's still very very opaque what's going on yeah, and I'm sure we'll check back in with you in in the times where some of these economic um, meetings take place. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you and to, to get some of your thoughts on what you've been watching and what markets are watching and what sort of we need to know going forward. Catherine Young, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.